It's like if you so like ready. wear a cute pastel sweater, you can just do whatever the fuck you want to the world. Oh my god. Because you're just protected by this like aura of Mr. Rogers energy that you can just like It's like evil Mr. Rogers. Yeah, if you just like say it with a smile and a nice pastel sweater, you're good to go. I'm sure that's exactly what Bill Gates publicist has drilled into him over and over. You can't be the guy in the antitrust video. the death panel if you'd like to support the show head to patreon at patreon.com slash death panel pod to become a patron for five dollars a month you get access to all of the back bonus episodes and our monday premium episode as well so we've got abby joining us again today hey it's just abby Artie, and i today phil is out for the day but he'll be back next week phil is being silenced by the bill and melinda gates foundation currently <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, As you've probably already noticed, either from whatever the episode title ends up being or the cover image for the episode, we're going to talk about Bill Gates today. Yeah. And his the particular role that he has played, especially over the last year with regards to the international rollout of the COVID vaccines, but also about his sort of role in venture philanthropy or philanthrocapitalism over the last, uh, basically since he started uh, using that as a shield to remake his image as not the antitrust guy. (laughs) Absolutely not the antitrust guy. Yeah, so before we get into... My I am not the antitrust guy (laughs) t-shirt is raising (laughs) a lot of questions already answered by the team. Exactly. (laughs) No, no. Um, So yeah, before we get into the global god king of pharma, I want to get into the latest with the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccine. So on Tuesday, uh, the CDC and the FDA issued a joint recommendation that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine needed to be paused. There's been a lot of like crazy speculation about, you know, what's going on with Johnson and Johnson because of a couple other news reports that have come through in the past couple of weeks, like production and manufacturing delays. There have been reduced shipments. And this yeah. pause actually doesn't necessarily have anything to do with that. Um, in re- it's actually in response to uh, six people having a pretty severe blood clot within the two weeks after the vaccination. So obviously there have been a lot of takes that are like, oh my God, this is like six people and six million. Why are we pausing? This is going to inspire vaccine hesitancy. I mean, we can get into what the pause really means, what it entails and stuff like that. But to me, it seems like this pause is evidence that the regulatory infrastructure is actually working the way that it's supposed to. And I think that that after like the year we've just had with COVID, I think that's really bewildering to like a lot of people, right? Like totally. Because the the pause is is out of an abundance of caution to like investigate these um cases of these very, you know, rare but very severe types of blood clots. And like, I think that we are just in the US, like we are not used to an abundance of caution being like the standard (laughs) that we use to do things like, 
you know, we're not used to the regulatory apparatus kind of like working. And I think that that is like contributing to a lot of people's feelings of danger. But my take on this is that the pause is probably a smart thing, right? Like this is like the right thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it is exactly that. It's a it's evidence of things working as they're designed to work. Yeah. I mean, because for like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is still only approved through a emergency use authorization in the first place. So I understand why, especially the um, people who especially I think for pundits who have been trained on and then endlessly repeating the notion that the vaccines alone are the route out of the <laughs> pandemic, right? right Which even right, the CDC right. director, Rochelle Walensky, finally this week, way too fucking late, acknowledged when she was saying, yeah, I guess that's probably why, uh, even though we have vaccine rollout in Michigan, that's not Right. <laughs> that's not stopping there being that, that's not stopping there from being cases in Michigan. Right. It, when when that idea has been reproduced over and over and it's kind of it, it I, I understand the perspective of, oh, this is just six people. How dare they uh, pause, pause the rollout of this vaccine? But also it's just it's it's like there's no good option here. Right. Because right. if mm-hmm. if there is, in fact, a problem and the, it does need to be stopped fully right which it doesn't seem like it's probably going to be the case but if if there is indeed a problem uh with the johnson and johnson vaccine then if they had just kept going that's fuel for anti-vaxxers i mean and and it's like i've heard somebody people be like well why why are we why didn't they like just pause it and not tell anyone or like investigate and not tell anyone and they're trying to be transparent about what's going on (laughs) also like the FDA Act also like explicitly prohibits that. Like that's like that's like explicitly like not what the FDA is supposed to do by design, right? Like that's the whole fucking point of the FDA is yeah. that they don't do that. And and the thing too is like you know, people are like, oh, well, if, if we do now that we're doing this, people are going to question the safety. And it's like, well, how do you think this the idea of the safety of the efficacy of the vaccine is even constructed? Right. Like we've accelerated the trials. And that doesn't mean that it's like not as safe. What it means is we don't have as much information and we're sort of working with what we have. So if something pops up once it hits a broader population, that's when you're going to start seeing the more rare instances. And as those pop up, a totally normal thing to do, whether the trials accelerated or not, whether the drugs approved or not, is to just pause. Right. Double check what the fuck is going on and make sure everyone is on the same page before we proceed. Well, and that's really important because that's why it's approved as an emergency use authorization (laughs) specifically and not just blanket approved as, okay, you know, approved going forward. The having it approved as an emergency use authorization says like, yes, there are things that we don't know. This hasn't gotten full approval. However, it is, uh, you know, it is at a, a stage where we know enough about it. We've seen enough from clinical trials that it's gonna, you know, we can roll it out to a larger population, and then when it rolls out to the larger population, we have to see what happens. So right, it's, yeah. you know, obviously these six cases. That's it's really terrible that these have happened. Um, but also, I don't think it's, I, I like, I, I understand that uh, it's it is is compelling to downplay like, oh, these are just six cases versus like the enormity of the pandemic. The problem is. There are all these other things that we could have been doing about the pandemic all along that we are specifically yes. not doing. Yes. So to cry foul at the last moment 
about specifically just right. a pause, yeah. not even a complete stop. Right. It's not even like <laughs> it's not even a prohibition. Like d- providers can move forward with the vaccine at their discretion. It's a recommendation for a pause. Right. Yes. Pending further information. So I have two kind of things to say about this. The first is I think you're exactly right. I think the biggest kind of the clearest trade off or downside of this pause that I can see is like. You know, I think it's probably happening and it's definitely possible that a lot of people have vaccination appointments that are now going to be, you know, canceled or postponed, um, you know, while this and I think, you know, this pause is hopefully going to be brief, just a few days. But like that is the clearest um, that's the clearest sort of like downside to this pause that I can see. But that downside could have been avoided if we had done, you know, again, anything (laughs) to minimize COVID transit, you know, it wouldn't be an emergency that, you know, people are maybe having to to reschedule their vaccines if we had a firmer handle on controlling COVID transmission, right? Like this would be um, potentially less of a downside. And then the other thing that I, that I want to say is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's six people, but for those six people, right, like we talk in terms of risk, you know, like one in a million. But if it right. happens to you, your risk is 100 percent, right? Like, like <laughs> right. The, yeah. the risk of that happening to you is one. So it's important not to discount those events, right? Like those those people's <laughs> those people's lives are important. You know, when you go from like a clinical trial, I think the clinical trial for the J&J vaccine had like 40,000 people in it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go yeah. you like. It's possible that, you know, if you're sampling 40,000 people (laughs) some way from the broader U.S. population that you might, you know, just by chance get a sample that will include, you know, these like one in a million events. But really, yeah, like when you start vaccinating millions of people, these extremely, extremely rare side effects you can start to see. But the reason why, I mean, this has to be communicated, like you were saying, B, (laughs) like there are reasons why this has to be communicated to the public, but these these rare types of blood clots that are possibly again it's it's not clear the pause part of the reason for the pause is allowing um investigators to determine you know if this link is real or spurious right. you know if it's really connected to the vaccine or if it's just kind of the background risk right right um but the reason why this this needs to be communicated is that the type of rare blood clot that they're looking at is treatable but the treatment is like the opposite of uh, the usual clinical treatment for blood clots. And so providers like need to know about that, right? Like healthcare right. providers need to know that. They need to know to be looking for this. Like, right. you know, people need to know, like if you got the J&J vaccine within the past two weeks and you have any of the following, this explainer outlines like the symptoms to look out for. There's severe headache, severe abdominal pain, pain in the legs or shortness of breath. You know, you need to seek medical attention and let your provider know, right? Like providers need to be on the lookout for um, these kinds of events and need to know how to treat them. I, I think, you know, what we'll what we'll see in the next couple of days is what's going to result out of these meetings that, that the FDA is now having right now to decide what to do. It's possible that within a couple of days, um, they're going to resume vaccination with certain restrictions. People are investigating. There's been some speculation as to whether this is just up a problem with the general class of 
of vaccinations because the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine, where they've Mm -hmm. also seen some reports here and there of blood clot problems, particularly coming out of Europe. Those are both based on using these adenoviruses, which are just basically like a a type of common cold, right? So it's a a different technology than um, what the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are using. So, you know, the, (laughs) this, this at the end of the day could come down to like a PSA to doctors on how to treat it and what to see and uh, changes as to like who's allowed to get the vaccine. But, you know, I think the more important conversation is actually this like broader conversation over like what's actually going on, like in a public sense, because like from the media perspective, it's really just creating this this conversation that I think completely ignores like the facts of like how drugs are developed, like how this stuff works and that this is like a very boring, normal situation to actually happen. Yeah. And I think I, I, I think this is just kind of, you know, again, this knock on effect of not only what I said before of, you know, making vaccines uh, the silver bullet as opposed to like any other like non pharmaceutical interventions that we have just failed to do categorically. But for a like paternalistic <laughs> failure to just clearly communicate <laughs> really simple stuff about yeah about um the drug development process and mm-hmm. about specifically how that applies to things here and to just say you know as soon as they had the emergency use authorization to basically roll out the mission accomplished banner and say like okay this is the end of the pandemic or or mm-hmm. whatever and then to you know, as though you cannot foresee, clearly not foreseeing any of the potential like fucking disasters of public relations that can occur when and have occurred many times in the past. Really <laughs> ordinary shit happens, right. like has happened here. There are some rare but troublesome cases. You know, rollout is paused to figure out what's happening, and all of a sudden, it's like fuel for just you know conspiracy or whatever Mm -hmm. and so i you know i understand why people are like so confused about this and partially it seems like that's you know in part because i think a lot of the people commenting on this and a lot of like media figures uh for example or media institutions talking around this are running around with their fucking head like like chickens with (laughs) their fucking heads cut off about it their pants around their ankles but that's (laughs) right but um yeah well no it's 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 a good point because i think one of the fundamental points here is that it actually doesn't behoove pharmaceutical companies for the public to understand how the drug development process works because it kind of undermines their authority a little bit right people i think like to think that the FDA has sort of always had the same amount of authority and scope that it has now, but that's actually not the case. And there's a reason why the, the FDA now has the authority to, you know, enforce a pause like the one that we're seeing, which is that, you know, basically like previously, um, as late as like the early 60s, like drug companies could go behind the FDA's back. They could start shipping stuff before it was approved for like promotional purposes. And there was actually an incident in 1962 where like 1,200 doctors were shipped thalidomide after the entire world and the entire U.S. media was like freaking out about what was going on with thalidomide in other countries causing birth defects. And the FDA had to put JFK on TV to like beg people to go through their cabinets, warning them that they might have like a deadly medication in their cabinet because the FDA didn't have the authority to basically like prevent this company from shipping out its product before it had gotten approval. Um, So it's like there's like very, very good reasons for pharmaceutical companies to kind of like downplay the role that the FDA actually has and the power that the FDA has over them, because it kind of undermines this idea that like, 
pharma is this like all-knowing, beneficent, scientific, like monolith, yeah, right? The authority, the authority. Right. Yeah. Like I, pharma, the thing. I think people like take that idea of safety and pharma and they associate it with like innovation, right? Not regulation. But the fact yeah. of the matter is, is that the safety does not just absolutely does not come from the innovation part of pharma. It comes from the regulatory oversight and the ability that the FDA has to literally pause things in the middle of what's going on, like we're seeing right now. Well, speaking of private sector, uh, self-anointed saviors of humanity. <laughs> um, yeah, so maybe this is actually a good moment to move on to our main topic for today. You know, in March of 2020, there was lots of talk of like needing to center global public goods. Um, pharmaceutical companies were pledging to embrace you no know, profit approaches to development. Um, they were agreeing to fair pricing rules. They were committing to cooperation. But by the end of April, that changed. So for the rest of the day, we're going to talk about how that idea died, who who killed it and why. And to do that, we're going to be checking in on someone who is clearly an underappreciated villain in this whole situation, which is everyone's favorite sweater boy, Bill Gates. Yeah, yeah, I agree <laughs> that I think um, Gates is, as you said, be this like is completely this unsung villain of the global vaccine rollout and the the sort of what so many activists and other people have called vac the vaccine apartheid mm -hmm. um taking place right now where we have you know while simultaneously press and media figures and like so many people in the u.s are cheering on the end of the pandemic chris hayes is talking about how he's so excited <laughs> to just uh you know within like a week or two after his second uh vaccine shot he's gonna be walking around the streets of Manhattan without a mask on because you know he because he can or whatever and you know actually same thing with like fucking uh, Emily Oster who we talked about in our, on our patron episode you know ba like basically issuing a public uh, demand like it's a Twitter post but basically issuing a public demand saying that the CDC must say that essentially uh, people once they're vaccinated can like remove their masks but so even as the United States prepares for the end of the pandemic the majority of the rest of the fucking world is basically left waiting for the, I guess, beneficent hands of a, a couple of international institutions to sort of get around to do to doing some percentage of vaccine donation uh, to them through a couple of uh, institutions around the WHO, um, many of which have been and much of the structure of which has been specifically lobbied by people Bill like Gaines. Gates, um, our favorite uh how to put it. I, f I feel like this is a similar story almost to how we make fun of the Obama administration a lot on this show for having made Atul Gawande's uh, <laughs> think piece in the New Yorker, <laughs> quote unquote, required reading to right. understand why health costs are so high and how that low, low level sort of pseudo intellectual fodder became the core tenet of the Affordable Care Act. I feel like this is almost a similar story where you have a figure like Bill Gates, who it seems has essentially you know, made it his life's mission to read every Steven Pinker book, right? <laughs> Who is, you know, depending on the week, uh, off and on is the world's richest man or whatever, and who spends his time mostly uh, writing reviews of airport books and, on, for his blog and... Uh, I guess, you know, encouraging poor countries to fight to the death for vaccine doses and basic like sanitation infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? Like that th this guy somehow has positioned himself really over the last couple of decades, basically, but it seems like it, over the last year, 
uh, quietly even further entrenched himself into the apparatus of global public health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think um, (laughs) I have like, I'm, I'm kind of new to this. Like for a lot of years, I've kind of treated like world health organization politics as like my event horizon. Like I, (laughs) I've kind of avoided it because I'm like, well, you know, once I start trying to follow it, like I will just get sucked in and, you know, we'll never care about anything else. So you you know, become a Maoist or, you know, start. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I'll become like a start burning down institutions and (laughs) (laughs) I'll just send like really inscrutable dispatches from some, you know, undisclosed location in the Appalachian mountains. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. I'm not going to do any of that stuff, but anyway, so I've, I've been like trying to get a handle on like what, is going on with the welcome Gates Foundation. Yeah, welcome to <laughs> to get a handle on what's going on with um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation at the WHO, specifically in terms of like COVID global vaccine distribution infrastructure and planning. In May of 2020, the World Health Organization created this thing called CTAP, which stands for like the COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, which was... Mm-hmm set up to be, um, I think, voluntary and kind of just a pool for sharing intellectual property within the World Health Organization. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has set up kind of parallel structures within the World Health Organization that seem to be working kind of at odds to CTAP. So (laughs) among those is ACT-A, which stands, I think, for the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. (laughs) And in contrast to CTAP, which is, you know, like an intellectual property pool, you know, the the goal is to reduce barriers erected by intellectual property rights to kind of sharing information necessary to manufacture and distribute vaccines. ACT-A, on the other hand, is like a public-private partnership And its purpose is very much to entrench or enshrine or strengthen the intellectual property claims of, you know, for example, the pharmaceutical companies that have patents on these various vaccine technologies. And so COVAX, which you've probably heard about, is like the vaccine pillar. It's like the vaccine vertical within Act A. And and I mean, like this, like this is within the World Health Organization, right? Like this is a massive effort, but it's like. It's a Gates Foundation-funded public-private partnership. And their plan, I think, is a modest one, which is to provide... uh, I'm pulling this out of the the New Republic piece that came out this week, but their plan was to provide vaccines for up to 20% of the population in low- and middle-income countries. Right. (laughs) And I guess beyond that, low- and middle-income countries are just sort of on their own and, like, I I presume have to compete on the open market. Yes. Um, yeah. For, you know, vaccine supplies um, and for vaccine deals. I don't know what the, the progress of COVAX is, but they have not met their goal. <laughs> Even, you know, their modest goal of providing vaccines for up to 20% of people in low and middle income countries. And there are 130 countries containing 2.5 billion people that have yet to receive a single, like they've yet to administer a single COVID vaccine dose. And so I think the terms of participating in COVAX are very uh, favorable to uh, pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, the the point or the objective is not actually to vaccinate the world's population quickly, right? Like the objective is to make sure that these pharmaceutical companies are able to recoup kind of maximum 
profits off of their off of their vaccine technologies. And I think this kind of reflects, I mean, the Gates Foundation has kind of a long history in the global public health space, but I think that what's going on, you know, with with the vaccines and with COVAX, I mean, essentially they like the Gates Foundation is like a Trojan horse for like <laughs> private interests to like get into the World Health Organization and set global health priorities that affect literally, you know, billions of people. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that is like profoundly anti-democratic, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, obviously there are lots of problems with that, right? Like these companies, these public-private partnerships don't have you know, any like oversight or account, like there's no public accountability. I think for for a, a lot of, re- you know, we can talk about the many reasons why colonizing the World Health Organization, like I, I said this to you, uh, B and Artie, I think before, but like, you know, that fungal parasite that like takes over ants' bodies <laughs> and like exactly. bursts out of their brain. I mean, the Gates Foundation, I think is one of the, one of the largest, if not the largest donor to the World Health Organization itself. Um, so basically, yeah, there are many reasons why it's bad that like this foundation and specifically this one, this one guy in like an ugly sweater, you know, is like <laughs> basically setting, setting the entire agenda for global public health to the benefit of corporate partners, you know, like pharmaceutical companies and oil companies um, that pour money into these Gates funded initiatives. Yeah, I think the I think the ant metaphor, the parasite ant metaphor is really perfect <laughs> because what what happened here, if you if you look at the timeline, what happened here is that decades ago, there were changes made to the way that the WHO was funded, which started to make it as a public health organization really reliant on charity donations to sustain it. So, you know, sort of early on, uh, as part of this, like, sort of boom of of US-led deregulation, um, and this is like before Bill Gates gets involved in any of this, you really have the path laid for public-private partnerships to start dominating the global public health space. And when the Gates Foundation gets involved in the WHO, they start to really get a lot of influence on directing the priorities of the organization, because as you're saying, Abby, they become like a huge donor. So when the COVID-19 crisis starts sort of developing into this like large global pandemic scale event, and it becomes clear that there needs to be some sort of coordination like out of the WHO, you see the Gates Foundation getting involved very early on to assert its uh, ideological perspective into the scenario, right? Right. I mean, they they get involved with the sort of initial stated goal above all else of the accelerator was to enforce and protect uh, the norms and status quo of intellectual property. They're very clear about it from from the beginning that the the act accelerator um, was sort of acting as this lobbying arm within the WHO trying to convince everyone that somehow intellectual property was no impediment to drug development, despite like absolutely overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So the the work that the ACT Accelerator starts doing within the WHO starts to take priority over these more solidaristic um, attempts to pool resources um, like CTAP, like what Abby was mentioning. And that really starts to dictate and shape the the priorities that we we went into the, the crisis with, right? Because you, you have, I think at a, a certain point, not that it was necessarily like going to happen. I think you had on the table the option to take an approach that temporarily could pause 
vaccine monopolies or undermine some of the power of, of pharmaceutical companies and some of the extra state power that they have from a global perspective. But early on, the Gates Foundation really asserts itself in the conversation to try and shut shut that narrative down and prevent any sort of challenge to, like, above all else, the intellectual property regime yeah. that it has, like, pretty high interest in, in maintaining. Yeah. And I think while, while it's very clear that um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gates himself have played a really direct uh, role in this. I mean, there's a there's a story, for example, uh, first reported in Bloomberg that um, everyone off the top of their head knows like some of the vaccine pairings now that have been approved in different countries. If you've heard of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, mm-hmm. uh, according to this Bloomberg report from last year, uh, Bill Gates directly basically intervened with people at Oxford put them in touch with a number of people, including AstraZeneca, who ultimately ended up being their sort of corporate partner mm-hmm. in uh, rolling this out, promising the university profits. And I guess, like, I mean, to back up this, this, I feel like is where it can be really easy to get. It, it's really easy to talk about this stuff and have it read as or ended up getting interpreted into kind of like down the line conspiratorial thinking, which mm-hmm. is why I think it's important to just say it's actually quite simple uh, what is overall happening here? It's part of this long-standing, I would say, uh, sort of like global colonization of sort of health and the intellectual property space uh, by like very, very traditional in a way capital interests. I mean, it, mm-hmm. so what I what I mean by that is, for example, okay, so like Bill Gates is someone who for a very long time classically is like his one of his whole things is actually like the the reason he, bill gates is not a wealthy man because of because he wrote some computer code bill gates because is not a wealthy internet man. explorer rocks right exactly bill gates didn't even fucking make internet explorer he <laughs> hired a guy if, he, though if you would watch the three-hour documentary about his brain <laughs> you would come away with the assumption that bill gates maybe at the age of 13 invented all computers yeah ever. i would not i would not i would encourage not you to recommend. not watch the netflix documentary <laughs> inside bill's brain uh it is straight up propaganda <laughs> and it also is extremely yeah fill, filled with a bunch of stuff about how i don't know it, i think it's very weird for a man who was a college dropout to be beating his chest about how he was really good at arithmetic in eighth grade but whatever that's just me <laughs> anyway so but my, my point is okay so for a long time for bill gates's entire career huge part of his whole thing has been and is intellectual property Mm -hmm. he will downplay this but that is what the antitrust stuff was about that is what his initial in the 70s he wrote this very famous letter famous among like uh i don't don't know like anti-intellectual property uh people like me or among like computer hacker people or or whatever uh sts or like science and technology scholars for example or just you know people who are like who are invested in the history of computers and the internet um this this letter Bill Gates, Bill Gates wrote this uh, open letter in the 70s uh, that was published in uh, like a, a hobbyist um, magazine. It's like Homebrew Computer Club newsletter um, where he basically acting as he was already then a huge fucking loser, just like castigated everyone who was using his software pirated just said like you, you like you assholes are all stealing my software like 
like uh, literally just accusing everyone who you know is doing doing this kind of at the time very uh like the the sentiment was much more like you know uh anti anti copyright and uh like very technological utopian at the time he was always already a monopoly capitalist how dare you i'm going to copyright my code so you can't so that i will so i can call you a thief and you will be labeled by the state a thief for taking my software and then yeah, he so went that and i can did pursue that. damages against you, if you exactly <laughs> he's like the patron saint of property right and then yeah. he and then he went and uh and effectively did that uh gates is really instrumental in the the, the history of the creation of uh code as a copyright protected category and then uh, continuing on when Microsoft becomes a bigger deal, uh, like later, later in the nineties and starts wielding all this power to the point that it's doing stuff like lobbying, uh, the lobbying Congress to slash the DOJ's budget, uh, or, uh, lobbying then, uh, more, you know, more notably or more on theme, I guess for this, Microsoft literally was one of the uh, fiercest proponents, along with Pfizer, which we talk about this other part of the story uh, in the in the uh, episode Pfizer Walk With Me, uh, which is a patron episode uh, from, I think, a month or so ago. Um, but Microsoft, along with Pfizer, really, really actively lobbied for the TRIPS agreement in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the TRIPS agreement being part of the WTO. Uh, that itself, you know, when you hear people talking about uh, the vaccine, public access or any of the vaccines and, uh, you know, breaking patents on uh, the vaccines and making it possible for them to be produced in other countries uh, without without having to having to have those countries pay uh, royalties or to, to pay absurd prices to like Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca or Moderna or whoever uh, for, you know, the, the privilege of uh keeping their keeping their fucking people alive like when you when you hear about people uh like pushing for a trips waiver what that is basically is specifically they're lobbying for a waiver for this thing which has not existed for that long of a time which essentially institutionalized a uh United States style copyright system as the sort of like global trade enforcement mechanism mm-hmm. um and uh and so yeah like in a, in a way this is like <laughs> Not only not only something uh, Gates and uh, Gates through Microsoft, but now through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been involved with with uh, for a long time. But it also, uh, you know, uh, it, it it I think colors all of every every aspect of his like philanthropic uh, efforts, because if you because when, when you realize that basically, you know, the majority of the institutions that Gates is is actually funding to do these sort of global public health things are, you know, essentially most of the money, most of the funding, uh, fundraising they do, or, uh, the, the money that they ultimately spend on these global public health measures are going to like the money actually goes to these already wealthy countries or to like corporations that are housed in these wealthy countries, to do things like purchase drugs or other materials or whatever to then, you know, in order to bring in aid, meaning that basically all that they're ultimately doing is like reinforcing this, uh, the, like the already existing structure and further entrenching Mm -hmm. the global copyright and uh, patent regime, like the global intellectual property regime, which then, you know, as, as again, a, a sort of like colonial limiting factor globally, right. in further entrenches, the power of all of the stakeholders that they're working with uh, in order to like muster this sort of 
uh, private response to like collective private response to the the needs in global, global global public health at the expense of you know any public actors being able to do you know like anything yeah they just to just to lay this out i mean yeah Artie, i think you're totally right and like just to to lay this to lay this out okay the bill and melinda gates foundation one of their like revenue streams is comes from patenting pharmaceutical products. Mm-hmm. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was heavily involved in getting the TRIPS provision passed. And now uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation within, you know, their um, structures within the World Health Organization are opposing the efforts of you know, low and middle income countries to secure trips waivers for COVID-19 technologies. So it's kind of this like sinister closed loop. But like what is really <laughs> happening, right, is the prioritization of pharmaceutical companies, you know, profit seeking ability and actual profits. I think pharma companies made like $20 billion or something in 2020. Yeah. Over, right, like the pressing public health emergency of eradicating COVID or, you know, vaccinating the world against COVID. Well, and even outside of uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, I mean, the one, the sole trustee of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is Warren Buffett. And what does Berkshire Hathaway own a lot of, but like stake in pharmaceutical companies? Right. And, And I mean, if you look at, if you look at the philanthropic mission of the Gates Foundation, like they are in the space, they they describe themselves as sort of being in the sanitation space, tackling the public health goals that aren't flashy, that no one really wants to do. And they sort of take this like, roll up your sleeves and do the do the hard work kind of like attitude. You know, they, they like to portray themselves as not going at it for recognition, but going at it because it's, you know, the right thing to do and an investment in humanity or like whatever. But what they're actually doing is is enforcing this idea globally, um, socially reproducing a framework of like health as property, right? Because it's, you know, most people think about like property as like an object, right? Or like something tangible, but like actually under under the law, under the law that like governs the sale, research and development of pharmaceuticals, property is actually like a characteristic. It's a relationship. It's a it's like a state of being or a state of relation of of the pharmaceutical development to individuals, both like people and countries and and organizations and whatever. So I think this sort of like the Gates Foundation relies on this misunderstanding of property, right? That it is that is an object that is something like singular um, as a way of trying to make sure that that they perpetuate this false impression that like for something to exist, like it must be owned. Right. So a lot of the ways that they go about bringing sanitation to, you know, other countries is they go about by like paying, uh, you know, paying startups to develop products that they will broker the sale of to nations. Right. That they're going to sell communities a product to modernize themselves versus like investing in public goods, investing in infrastructure. Right. It's right. a very specific ideological way of helping people and one that's designed to to keep up this mythology that Gates wants to protect that, like, if something exists, it must be owned. Right. right? Well, which is why people call this like a uh, call uh, actions like this um, 
like neo-colonialism exactly yeah except for there's like really nothing neo about it it's just straight up it's you know much i think much like much like i think we can look at a lot of uh the the work that is done as sort of like you know uh like casual academic statistics or uh like i don't know sinetra gupta's theoretical epidemiology or something (laughs) like that um as a as you know not not a form of uh neo-eugenics but just you know the the continued uh the continued existence of eugenics as an ideological project uh, <laughs> yeah what in, is in, the gates foundation if not colonialism persisting <laughs> yeah exactly it's and and i think it, this is this like how to put it and i think this can get reduced very easily to it can be oversimplified to simply drug companies are bad therefore uh like you, you know if you think about the the um I don't know the the pandemic people of the world like therefore <laughs> pharmaceuticals are bad for you therefore the things that drug manufacturers make are bad for you but like no the thing is that these companies enjoy uh, extraordinary control over the production uh, and maintenance of health globally mm-hmm. um they're you know it isn't that they've they received taxpayer a, money to do it in many cases, yeah. right? Innovation and charitable dollars. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like it, it isn't simply that they've created the value of, of drugs or value of health out of whole cloth. Like they've been, ex- it's that they've been su- extremely successful in shaping and using our political economy in a way that lets them effectively make unilateral decisions about the value of populations Mm -hmm. and the value of life. And that is, you know, I mean, that's the, I mean, I'm describing the project of uh, like the sort of global project of pharmaceutical companies at at this point, but that's also, you know, the, the involvement of uh, Gates and these sort of like, again, private stakeholder uh, charitable public health, uh, organizations is you know is, is like exactly is not only uh, the like the same prerogative uh, but it feeds into and supports it feeds into supports perpetuates and uh, and like reproduces the ability of things like pharmaceutical companies to mm-hmm. go ahead and and do the same. It's not simply that yeah. like health is a like they do this because health is an extremely valuable commodity under capitalism and, they need and we to have allowed it. them to exploit it. Right. They they are actively engaged in the, the making of health into property. And that is yeah. their chief goal, really, above anything else. And it has been for a long time now. And it's also framed like it's framed uh, investment in these terms of like profitability and cost benefit analysis, which like as as we talk about all the time are like disastrous constraints to apply to any scenario relative to health. Right. But it it's sort of like the biggest problem actually about the Gates Foundation involvement is like what are the um, sort of baseline ideological assumptions that it mm-hmm. forces its participants to take as fact. Right. Because in a way, like what the Gates Foundation is involved in is like it can constructs its own reality and then it enforces it and imposes it on all these other systems and structures through, you know, funding. And, you know, I, I think it's what called the bill chill, yeah, the you bill know, chill. where the bill chill where like researchers like just use that as a term to describe the phenomena of being like too chicken shit to bite the hand that feeds you and like, you know, criticize the gates because they have 
such power when it comes to like being able to allocate research dollars and being able to, to confer legitimacy and being able to like elevate and promote a pro- like project and and you know get through regulatory barriers and do those big deals and do that partnership and you know I think it's very telling that when you have the director of Oxford's Jenner Institute you know starting to consider placing the rights to its vaccine in the public domain all of a sudden, like Bill Gates shows up saying, hey, I have a manufacturing partnership for you, which I know was an open issue that you were trying to solve. Here's AstraZeneca. If you don't make it public domain, we can get started on making it. Well, because any one of these companies making one of these things uh, public domain or making it so that the the intellectual property is shared globally is a like any one of them doing it if the mm-hmm. if the vaccine that they're making if the vaccine is successful that they're making the intellectual property open for any one of them doing it is a threat to the entire racket exactly right? it's, it's just yeah it's like soprano yep. shit basically exactly. <laughs> he has to keep up the lie that's what he's doing yeah i feel like at bottom the like bill and melinda gates foundation infrastructure right it's essentially like an an infrastructure for elevating the wants and desires of private companies, you know, often but not always pharmaceutical companies. It's an infrastructure for placing their sort of profit-seeking motivations on an equal footing with like global health needs. And like to mm-hmm. me, that's totally abhorrent, right? Like that is not that's completely contrary to the spirit of public health, but I think it's a way to allow these private interests to set the whole agenda for global health, basically without any oversight, right? Like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation essentially controls the IHME, the Institute, something for health metrics and evaluation. Yeah, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Which is ex- which is itself an extremely question, like up to extremely yeah. questionable. So, uh, oh, yeah. So like it's this activities. whole infrastructure <laughs> of, you know, knowledge production, uh, program implementation, and then evaluation of, you know, the programs that they are implementing. And it's kind of a closed circuit. And there's not really any opportunity for, again, like democratic oversight or accountability. And I think that that is a problem. I don't know. I just think that like the scrutiny of the role of the Gates Foundation in global public health and how it has like been able to truly like... <laughs> I I mean, I don't know what metaphor to use, but the way they've been, you know, truly able to sort of colonize like the global public health infrastructure scrutiny of that is is long overdue, I think. Yeah. And and I think that's like that's a really good point about the colonial extension. One of my my favorite uh, points in the three hour journey inside Bill's brain that I forced (laughs) Artie to go on with me was a moment where he started dissing the maps that were like the colonial maps of Africa, saying, you know, oh, well, you know, when we were coming in trying to eliminate polio, you know, the scourge on the earth, we were trying to eliminate polio, we ran into like a flatline experience where we hit a plateau and normally people would have given up. But then we started looking at, you know, the maps and we were like, you know, the British Empire did a shit job. What we really need to do is extend the colonial project of mapping Africa in order to be able to eradicate polio. And then he perceived that it was like a 35 minute montage of patting themselves on the back for like really, you know, picking up where the British left off. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, first of all, like Bill Gates can, and this (laughs) saying this might end my career, but Bill Gates can go fuck himself because (laughs) Jonas Salk 
Scorpio King, Pittsburgher, and uh, <laughs> inventor of the Salk polio vaccine, right, explicitly said, I'm going to find the quote. Okay, a journalist, Edward Murrow, asked him, who owns the patent on this vaccine? And Jonas Salk said, well, the people, I would say, there is no patent. Could you patent the sun? You can't patent the sun. <laughs> yeah. Um, One of my favorites. So, yeah, first of all, <laughs> shut the fuck up about, <laughs> like, eradicating <laughs> polio with, like, a public-private partnership. And then, second of all... I don't know. I'm imagining just like <laughs> I'm imagining a bunch of people in like a fucking we work just like trying to use oh a God. neural net to like draw <laughs> trying to use like a support vector <laughs> machines to draw <laughs> neo-colonial boundaries. <laughs> I mean, one of my one of my uh, favorite minor hobbies is to uh, spend way too much time researching the history of like charities and back, you know, and drug development and pharmaceutical regulation and stuff. Just, you know, I mean, I have a, I have like a stake in it personally as someone who is a vessel for some of this very expensive intellectual property that I walk around with all the time. But, you know, they, there is a very specific reason why the Gates Foundation got into polio in the first place. And they, they talk about this early on when they start working on polio in a lot of their public relations documents and a lot of their presses, the interviews, they say, you know what? Polio failed, like managing polio failed. Look at what we did with smallpox, which, you know, that was a that was that's a that's one vaccination like uh, schedule. Right. And they're saying like we could have done that with smallpox and we didn't. And they kind of gesture that part of the reason why that uh, the polio efforts did not reach the smallpox efforts like, you know, not to they never consider the fact that they're like very different diseases, very different types of circumstances that cause them, et cetera, et cetera. They're like, no, the problem is, is that, you know, the polio vaccine wasn't profitable. And vaccines aren't profitable. So we're putting money in the stuff that's not profitable. And, you know, they, they imply very often that the reason why the polio vaccine wasn't profitable is because of Salk's like ideological commitment to open property. Right. And so they, they really from the from day one, their involvement in public health. Yes, it is a public health goal. Like, yes, polio is awful and preventable. But why did they pick polio? Right. Why did they pick polio first? Why did they pick malaria? There have also been calls to make malaria treatment, you know, free, open, accessible. They get involved in markets that challenge the hegemony of like drugs as property explicitly. And that's been the charitable goal of the Gates Foundation all along is to, you know, really exert influence on the things that they think are important, that they think drive health and drive innovation. And they'll do that, ignoring any evidence to the contrary. And I think it's like, you know, it's very well outlined in all these reports of like, you know, the Gates Foundation basically like lobbying the WHO this entire COVID pandemic saying IP does not interfere with uh, access at all. And that's just false at the end of the day. Yeah. But it's interesting, right? Like, again, that you see this tactic that I feel like comes up in like many, many domains of science and society as far as COVID is concerned, which is, right, like it is it is definitely a tactical maneuver to be like, no, 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 you have to prove, you have to prove from first principles that intellectual property rights, you know, do impede, you know, access <laughs> right. to vaccines. And that's happening, I think that's happening at the WHO right now, like, some some representative from the country of Norway is now saying like, oh, no, like you you haven't, you know, India and South Africa and these countries that are signing on to this TRIPS waiver, you haven't you haven't proven, 
you know, to a sufficiently high degree that, you know, this kind of intellectual property rights preserving regime, you know, would would impact you adversely. So you need to like produce more evidence and bring it back to us. And it's like, okay, because yeah, yeah, sure. Like dozens and dozens of studies over decades don't matter. You know, what really counts as evidence is when a Steven Pinker book says that, you know, intellectual property, you know, inhibits access or whatever. That's, yeah. that's the kind of proof they're looking for. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, also, I mean, I, I find this, I find this line, you know, it is on you to prove that intellectual property is impeding, uh, you know, uh, impeding the ability of uh, us, us to, you know, solve these global health problems or to, or to uh, as in the case of the current crisis, vaccinate people who clearly under capitalism or under, you know, a global uh, regime or under, or under like a global capitalist regime are, you know, being clear, like clearly just left to die at the moment. Like, um, the, the saying that, but saying that you have to like prove, uh, intellectual property is not like Im- impeding these things is basically like saying like, okay, so pro- like prove that, uh, prove the Higgs boson exists. We will not <laughs> let you touch our particle accelerator. You can't touch any, you have to do it with a pen and paper. First, uh, yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah. or yeah. And is exactly. the, well, if it's you could like, really do, you know, do all that arithmetic in your head, then you should be able to do it. Right? Is the proof not in the. Again, you know, 130 countries, 2.5 billion people, like who have not not administered a single dose, right? Like the implicit valuation of of life in this kind of argument is very interesting. Yeah. Speaking of though the uh, implicit valuation of life in all of this, I think um, maybe if one thing that we could do, I would like to return to the thing that you mentioned earlier, Abby, the the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, because I think that this, uh, you know, we've we've sort of offhand mentioned how there are all of these kind of you know like vectors from which the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and and generally uh, Gates like funds components of charitable work that all kind of feed into an overall ecosystem. And this is, I think, one of the most absurd and sort of patently facetious of them. (laughs) And yet it seems to underpin so much of the so much of the direction that all of their work takes, which is I mean, which I think is like fitting, because again, for as we've sort of been talking about for people who for someone who like kind of pulls big philosophical ideas from airport books Mm -hmm. uh, and runs with them. It makes sense that he equally has, you know, don't like basically funded uh, millions and millions of dollars of research to this just sort of like best guess statistics lab. So the IHME, like they are very influential in the world of global public health, which, again, is like not my world. So in my professional life, I don't really have much truck with IHME, but you probably remember at the very, very beginning of the pandemic in the U.S., the IHME models were like everywhere and they were really Mm -hmm. influential. And I remember checking them because, you know, it was like every day it was kind of updating with like it was, you know, purporting to be sort of projections for when, you know, deaths and like healthcare utilization would peak. And if you remember like the the early predictions from the model were pretty optimistic in terms of how quickly and at what level um, deaths from COVID would peak in the U.S. It turns out that, I mean, there were kind of problems with 
the model <laughs> that they were using. So like basically Surprise. like, yeah, there are, um, this is outlined in like a, I think it's like a, a stat news piece that kind of goes into the details of the actual modeling. But basically, typically when you are modeling an infectious disease, you want to incorporate like parameters that you know of about, you know, like the virus, the population structure, right? So you can say, okay, like we know COVID has like an R naught of like approximately, you know, whatever the R naught is. Um, it has an incubation period of like, approximately two weeks, maybe, you know, we have so-and-so many people in the United States. Like the the idea of modeling an infectious disease is that you take all these inputs of things that you know so that you can kind of like project what what might happen. And, you know, if you're modeling, you can vary your assumptions and kind of see how things would change based on, you know, what you know about about the virus and the population structure, you know, and you can kind of figure out how you what's reasonable to expect might happen, you know. If the if the virus behaves this way versus that way, like if we institute such and such uh, mitigation measures versus none, but mm-hmm. the IHME model wasn't really like that. It wasn't like, <laughs> as far as I understand, a traditional infectious disease model. So instead, they took you know you've seen the epidemic curves of you know deaths or cases. Um, they took like the epidemic curves of deaths from different places like, you know, China and like, I think Italy at that point were the major kind of hotspots of COVID. And then they just figured out like where on that, on those epidemic curves of say deaths, the U.S. seemed like they were, right? So like if we had X number of deaths, they would find kind of the corresponding point on the curve from that they derived from somewhere else and then use that to say like, okay, well, you know, we're here on the curve, so it's going to peak at like this number and then decline. But that kind of assumes that all of those epidemic curves look the same in different places and regardless of which mitigation measures you're using. So (laughs) you can imagine if you're basing, you know, these so-called, I don't think they really are projections. They're just kind of like repeated, like fitting (laughs) of, you know, data, but you could imagine that like, if you're assuming that all of these curves look the same and you're using like the curve from Wuhan, where like a very strict lockdown was implemented, you know, like very (laughs) quickly and using that to just say, you know, knowing nothing else about what's going on in the United States, you know, not incorporating, incorporating any information about COVID, you know, itself, like the virus itself, you can see how you might end up with like an underestimate of how many deaths, um, there would be in the US and the IHME initially predicted i think between like 40,000 and like 160,000 deaths in the US and obviously Oopsies. that projection has proven to be incorrect but these estimates were very influential um within the Trump administration i mean if you look around you can find them you know like Deborah Burks like using a pointer you know pointing at some of these projections and i mean i'm not sure if these like optimistic projections created like a false sense that it was okay to like lift restrictions maybe like earlier than we should have. But I think that's certainly a possibility. But uh, the COVID modeling, I think, is just like kind of one small part of what IHME does. So all this stuff that you're describing, though, with how they've handled the pandemic, uh, like the their pandemic forecasting and stuff, this is just kind of part uh, part and parcel of what uh, the IHME does in the in the first place, which is almost 
I mean, when when you if you, you kick one tire of this thing and it becomes just absurd uh, that this that this has any sort of like that this is looked at as a, a valuable source at all. Um, the so the the backstory of this I'll read just from one of Bill Gates' own blog posts because uh, you know as I mentioned before <laughs> he has Gates notes his little uh, book. His, it's like maybe one of the blog. five worst blog names I've ever heard in my whole life. Just saying. Yeah. Um, but so uh, this is how he recounts how Gates putatively written actually by Gates. He's a he seems like a control freak, so he probably actually wrote this. But um, how Gates recounts the kind of initial story. Chris Murray is the person who Gates basically met and, uh, you know, more or less, it sounds like installed him in a university. This is like um, Medici shit. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But that's what they do. You yeah, know, that's, no, uh, that's exactly. why. Yeah. Um, this but is the, a bigger, more fucked scale. Medici's sort of though, like, if you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so he like he kind of it sounds like basically like lured him away from Harvard uh, to found the the IHME and based, based basically on this. So Gates writes the first time, quote, the first time I met Chris Murray, he was wrestling with a big question. It was in the early 2000s and Chris was working at the World Health Organization in Geneva. I was in town for some meetings at the WHO and her heard from Chris about a project he was working on. He wanted to understand why do people get sick and die? It wasn't a philosophical question. He meant what are the biggest causes of death and disability? How does HIV compare with strokes or road injuries or suicides or back injuries? How do those answers change over time and in different countries? And so essentially based on this, again, very fucking Freakonomics style pitch, right? Mm -hmm. This is a very like, airport book style pitch there are ways to do this obviously like the who among other things one of the things that they are basically the other than ihme the global accountable source for is you know figuring out the best information we have on statistics like this the problem is that pretty much it seems like everyone uh from from a lot of accounts of like people who are willing to draw the ire of like the bill and melinda gates foundation uh, and like speak about the work that the IHME actually does. Basically, uh, everyone says that in terms of their the actual production of their data and statistics, because essentially the like long story short, Gates funds this. The like the IHME is founded on this idea of figuring out all of this. Um, you know, statistical yeah, the global burden of disease, death. I think. I mean, yeah. it sounds exactly like the first three years of the Cold Springs Institute. That's a, yeah, no, exactly. It's very eugenic. It's very fucking like Bill Gates phrenologist in chief. You know, it's, it like, is, it's exactly. extremely because, you know, of course, nowhere here could be the idea of and this is, you know, rampant in all of their philanthropic uh, work. But like nowhere here is the idea of you know, like in increased uh, social spending or mm-hmm. any of the regular stuff that you would just do to like improve everyone's life categorically. And a lot of a lot of that stuff is, you know, it is apposite to the the goals of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, because what they want to do is they want to find these like one quick fixes, which are able to be uh, often, which are able to be capitalized on. Um, but regardless so that at the very least you can do a, a whole bunch of patchwork and not have to address any sort of structural inequities, not to have to address anything that would by its nature essentially mean having to unravel capitalism. I mean, but yeah. The- so can I, can I actually uh, share a quotation that I think is um, relevant yeah. 
uh, to just what you're saying. So this is from uh, this long piece called U.S. Philanthrocapitalism and the Global Health Agenda by Anne Emanuel Byrne, who is a professor of, I think, critical development studies at the University of Toronto, and Judith Richter, who I think is affiliated with the University of Zurich. Um, but this speaks to what you were saying. So I'm just going to read you a little bit of this piece. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's reductionist approach emerged clearly in Bill Gates's keynote address in May 2005 to the 58th World Health Assembly, the annual gathering at which WHO member states set policy and decide on key matters. Gates invoked smallpox eradication through vaccination, whose cost was low due to its non-patented status, to chart a global health agenda. Quote, some dot, 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 say that we can only improve health when we eliminate poverty. And, el and eliminating poverty is an important goal. But the world didn't have to eliminate poverty in order to eliminate smallpox. And we don't have to eliminate poverty before we reduce malaria. We do need to produce and deliver a vaccine, end quote. Yeah. No, I, I feel like I should just plug the essay that I put up on my Substack today, which talks about a lot of the early ways that these like cure frameworks actually developed and were commodified, because really all that Bill Gates is doing at the end of the day is just taking the 19th century rehabilitation model and making it like dressed up and look humane with this global philanthropic vision. At the end of the day, right. it's only mm -hmm. eugenics. It is rhetoric of cure. Rhetoric of cure is always a politics of elimination. There's no way around that. And the idea of a cure and vaccination are actually two very different things, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. and so I, I think, you know, what we're, what we see obviously is this idea that because, you know, a successful person who is well-dressed and maybe, you know, influential, like is uh, endorsing this. It's somehow um, a t technological innovation. But actually, at the end of the day, like tech giant or not, like what he's really doing is just really old school Mendelian eugenics. And just entrenching current systems of power completely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, and this, you know, to, to the eugenics aspect, this is the other aspect, which I'm not sure if I have, you know, to have totally been you know, explicit enough about, but one of the main problems with the IHME, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons that I bring it up is, you know, again, they're using this, uh, both as a, as a way to sort of, you know, they use their research, the IHME's research to then go ahead and, and, you know, ba basically, uh, target where they should do public private partnerships and how they should do that. But also with, uh, again, this, this very, uh, I don't know, startup bootstrappy idea. This very actually similar to the, uh, this thing that actually reminds me very much of the Emily Oster. Um, I'm going to go ahead and make my own database of, uh, of <laughs> school cases stuff or whatever, which is just like the, their whole goal seems to be to basically supplant the publicly account, any publicly accountable entity trying to do any of this work and to try to have metrics for anything related to health that they can, you know, po like possibly pin a number to, even if they're guesses. So like one example that is, is pointed to a lot is the IHME, for instance, purports to have uh, comprehensive uh, records of uh, malaria deaths in certain areas of the world, um, records of which data for which does not actually exist. Ow. And when you sort of go, you know, when you again, kick one tire, when you look into it a little bit, it's based on uh, estimates on modeling based on basically statistical probability and 
one variable of like as much as is known about bed net distribution or the quality of bed nets uh, <laughs> in a given area as though that was like the one thing. Yeah, it's like it's like a you know, it's like a a proxy and then maybe some assumptions which like may, you know, be reasonable assumptions or may not, but it's not direct measurement of right. it's like not direct quantification but like you know millions of dollars in aid are being directed on the basis of these <laughs> estimates assumptions which is yeah. why right which yeah. is exactly why B's comparison to the Cold Spring Harbor Institute and the early eugenics movement I think is extremely apt because it's the same kind of you know also came on the we're back of going tech. to direct these massive uh, like this massive resource spend, this massive resource allocation. Also like allocation towards, of life chances. Yeah, too. yeah, exactly. And allocation of life chances based on some really unreliable uh, assumptions, basically not even data, just like straight up assumptions. I think an, a telling world. thing to always do is when you look at any big public health database like this, any any database that purports to give you an idea also of like global the impact of global disability, it's always really telling to look at what definition of disability they're using. Yeah. You know, the federal government alone uses like between like 50 and 80 different definitions of disability depending on the one thing. If you get to the level of like global infrastructure, global health research, it gets really messy. And this has actually been one of the principal goals of the WHO for like years has been trying to get everybody to use one definition of disability. And Bill Gates has actually been like an activist against that goal within the WHO for a while. And if you look at, you know, what definition of disability is being used. It's very telling because sometimes you'll see something that includes like a social model framing, the idea that there are social determinants of health that dictate a disability. What they use, what the Gates Foundation initiative uses is disability adjusted life years. So they look at disability only from the basis of like how many years it takes a body out of the workforce and how quickly it condemns someone to die faster relative to the people around them that aren't considered disabled. And it's very telling, like when you start looking at sort of like, how are they building these structural ideas of like people for their study? You really do see like these, um, these like baseline eugenic principles, these ideologies, which have been in place for decades, right, just c clearly outlined and articulated in like the very definition structure of what they're even looking at at the end of the day. Yeah, methodological tools, including definitions, have epistemological consequences. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's my number yeah. one. That's my number one, like crusade that is the tlr tldr for the day yeah for sure i think that might be a good place to leave it if you'd like to support the show please become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod abby thank you for coming on the show again it's always a pleasure to hang yeah thanks for having me and as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week it ain't no use to sit and wonder why babe it don't matter anyhow It ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe Honey, bunny, you got to know by now When the rooster crows at the break of dawn Look out your window, honey, and I'll be gone You're the reason I am traveling on Don't think twice, it's all right Walking down the lawn
Where I'm bound, I can't tell But goodbye, do goodbye, babe So I just say fairly well I ain't saying you treated me unkind You could have done better, but I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time Don't think twice, it's all right Twice it's all right. Walking down the long road, road, babe. Where I'm bound, I can't tell. But goodbye to good, 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 babe. So I just say farewell. I ain't seen you treating me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. You just got to waste it, my precious time. Twice it's all right. You got to, got to, got to, got to feel it. You got to, got to feel it. You got to, got to, got to. If you don't feel it, you ain't got no soul. You got to, got to, got to one time. Got to feel it. Got to, got to feel it. Back then, some amount of adrenaline or something, I would buy a bottle of Tang, which is a orange sugary drink that they took to the moon, that, you know, I instead of going to meals, I would just pour orange Tang in my hand and, and lick it off my hand as I was working on things. So my face would be covered in this orange stuff and you're supposed to put it in a cup with water and stir it around and drink it. But you can just skip the water because your body already has water in it and just lick it off your hand. Quickly. And the keys didn't get all orange? 